Hi, my name is Marcus, and this morning our scripture reading is from the book of Philippians. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. Okay, I asked for a service, so I have to ask you guys. How many of you actually get out your Bibles when I say, please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens? Hey, thanks, Holly. All right, cool. So for Holly, the uh, verses are 7 through 14 from chapter 3 in the New International Version. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ and the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participations in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Good morning and joyous new year to you. Uh, I just completed uh, one month uh, with you and was very grateful that I started in Advent. I had a church home with you. And uh, here we are in the new year, ready to get this uh, thing going. Um, I wanted you to know that uh, I am on the ground here in, on Mercer Island uh, all day on Sundays and on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And so I'm here three days a week. If you don't know, uh, my wife and I live in Bellingham, and I recently completed uh, 16 years as the lead pastor at Bellingham Covenant Church. And so that is our home. But uh, this journey southward, the hour and a half drive, is not a problem for me at all. I'm well used to driving this uh, pathway to Bellingham and back. And uh, the church here has been gracious to put me up at Covenant Shores right here on Mercer Island. So I stay in the guest room. And when I get up in the morning and come out of my guest room, uh, there's nobody at the shores that goes, well, like, who's the young guy living here? <laughs> Uh, they go, oh, it's a new resident uh, at the church. So uh, I am old enough to be a part of that, but I'm very grateful for that opportunity. I wake up afresh. And the three days when I'm on the ground, I really look forward to connecting with you. Uh, I really love good coffee. And so if you're a good coffee person, I'd love to have coffee with you and look forward to that on the days when I am here. Uh, one of the practical things people have asked me, like, well, how should we address you? Uh, because my name is Paul Peterson, and so some people call me Paul, some people call me Pete. That's my wife's uh, handle for me. Uh, when I was in uh, Bellingham, our youth group came up with Triple P, uh, Pastor Paul Peterson. So Pastor Paul, Pastor Pete, Pastor Paul Peterson, any of those work, I answer to all of those. Uh, but here's a fun fact, if you would put up the first uh, picture there. Uh, in Bellingham, I am more known as a coach than I am as a pastor. 
And that's because for 20 years I've been a volunteer assistant baseball coach at our local high school, Seahome High School. Uh, the gentleman standing next to me is Gary Hatch, and Gary is in the uh, Hall of Fame of the state of Washington for baseball coaches. A tremendous uh, leader, tremendous coach. I've learned a lot from him. If you show the next uh, slide. Uh, and what this opportunity as a coach has given me is to get outside what I call the subculture of the Christian church. Uh, often pastors are so involved in their own churches that they lose touch with the community. Uh, one more slide. And so for me, I've enjoyed this role as a volunteer, being able to be seen in the community, get involved in the community, especially with the players and coaches. And uh, I, I love the fact that uh, I've been able to be involved officiating the weddings of two of the players. And sadly, I was involved in a memorial service for one of our young players as well. But it's, uh, it's a part of my life that you're gonna hear about and it really ties in with this new series that we're starting in the new year. I'll go ahead and put up the next slide. We're entitling this uh, Deeper in Christ and Further in Mission. And, and this is not unique to myself or to this church. This, in fact, is the purpose statement that our denomination has. If you go to our website, the national site, you'll see this embedded in there. I've been involved with a lot of churches in developing vision and purpose and value statements, and I keep coming back to this one. It's easy to remember, and it really encompasses all that we believe in our faith. And so that is what we're doing in this series, is we are looking at taking a fresh look at the foundations of our own faith and how we live those out as individuals and as a church family. Because as you know, it isn't just about thinking correctly about our faith. It is actually putting feet to that. So the fundamentals are critical because as humans, we lose focus in all areas of our lives. And the fundamentals take us back to what we know. And the fundamentals take us back to what we have learned from our experience. And this is true in many disciplines. If you're a musician, when you start to get off track, you go back to the scales that you learned and played as nauseam when you were taught the instrument. You talk to the greatest musicians, they never get away from practicing their scales. If a business loses track of where they're at, they go back to their own mission and values. What are we here for? In baseball, it's easy to work on fundamentals. We spend 40 minutes at every single practice before we get on the field, the kids stretch, they throw, they stretch, they hit, they do all the things fundamentally that will help them when we practice on the field. And the Christian axiom that I like to say is the, fundament the fundamentals help us realize that what we often need as Christians is more reminders more than we need new instruction. It's always nice to learn something new, but the Christian faith has some basic fundamentals that we never lose nor leave. In fact, I believe Jesus taught the fundamentals in what we call the greatest commandment. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. 
The reason I call those fundamentals that Jesus is talking about is he is referencing something that was taught in the law back in Deuteronomy by Moses to the people of Israel. It's called the Shema. And in the Jewish uh, religion today, that is a prayer that is recited daily. And so Jesus took that and elaborated on it, but he was building on the fundamentals that every good Jew would know. And yet the priority of those two things is important. Love God first, and then we serve neighbor. We don't serve neighbor without loving God at the core. And so as we begin looking at the text and looking at the Apostle Paul's version of this, I invite you to bow your heads in prayer. Lord Jesus, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. As Marcus so aptly introduced, uh, we're looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 14. Go ahead and put up verse 7, if you would. What I like about this is, you know, Paul is an interesting writer in that he often goes from kind of didactic teaching into prayer, into doxology, back to teaching, back to prayer. He's kind of this stream of consciousness guy. And I really believe this section is a prayerful response to uh, the Apostle Paul's understanding of what it means to go deeper in Christ. As we know, Paul was a hyper-zealous Jewish legalist that turned into a hyper-Jesus devotee. He went from one hyper to another hyper, but they couldn't have been more different in terms of what was at the core of his life. This statement, could Paul be any more laser-focused on what his purpose was? In his life as a good Jewish Pharisee, he didn't lack purpose or meaning. He just had the wrong priorities and he had the wrong focus. And he understood that because in verse 8, he goes on to write, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. Now look at what he's using. He's using the language of accounting here. Loss and gain. It's a balance sheet of his own life. And so to, to lose something means he replaced it with something else. And on the balance sheet of the apostle's life, his previous life was the influence that he had as a religious leader. He had power and authority. But he also led in the persecution of Christians, as we know, in early in Acts. He was a Jewish zealot. And even though all those things were a part of his life, his net balance sheet came up to zero. And because of his Damascus Road experience, because he encountered a living Christ, his life was flipped. And so we can see that the knowledge that he was understanding, the surpassing worth, was now knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he uses knowing 
in a way that is used throughout the scriptures in that it ref often refers, or we can gain help, by thinking about the relationship between a parent and a child. We all have parents in our past, and so we know what it is to be a child, and some of us have been blessed as parents to have children of our own. But there's three elements to what it means to know a parent or know your child. And the first one is obviously the family connection. One of the first things a child learns is who mom and dad are. And those are often the first words that they learn. And in our knowing of Christ, it is that we are sons and daughters of the triune God. Marvelous, deep, familial language that describes this amazing relationship that we have with this God. The second element of knowing is that a child knows the character of their parents. They know when they're happy, they know when they're sad, they know when they're angry, they know when they're pleased. We learn that as children about our parents. And in this knowing of Jesus Christ, we come to know him as we understand his character. The Gospels are so helpful to us because we see him as a human exhibiting characters that we can, uh, characteristics that we can understand as human beings. And the final element of knowing a person is that personal experience. A child hopefully grows up in a home where they learn something more about their parents. They have personal experience with mom and or dad. And so in our faith, knowing Christ means walking with and learning to trust the things that we may have only read on pages and say, could God actually be trusted with my life? Can I trust him in this area, even though I can't see beyond the front of my face? And that's what personal experience does in knowing Christ. So I would submit to you that in all of those ways, Paul is speaking about this knowledge and what it means for us to go deeper in Christ. The second part of verse 8, Paul says, I consider all the previous stuff garbage, that I may gain Christ. Again, concise, to the point, laser-focused. The garbage word here can be translated street filth, or even stronger, human dung, human rubbish. And the vulgarity of this term, I think, is deliberate by Paul. He is trying to help everyone understand the depth to which he has looked at his past and said, I am no longer that person. Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Jesus put it in very concise terms even in his own teaching. And it's not a matter that life's pleasures and our interests and the things that motivate us are wrong. In fact, Jesus demonstrated all kinds of ways as a human being that he engaged in life fully. So it's not a question of whether the pursuits 
we shouldn't be following those things. It's a matter of priority. It's where is Christ in that scenario? Because Jesus knows that we are frail. He knows that we're prone to wander. He knows that our sinful nature rears its head and leads us off the center. And so my experience has been that I need constant recalibration to bring Jesus back to his rightful place in the center. Let's look at verse 9. Paul goes on to, in this prayer to long to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that's his past, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. In that one phrase, Paul sums up the entirety of his wonderful argument that he took a whole letter to the Romans to describe. He knows who he was. He knows that that was garbage. And now there's something that is life-giving at the center of his life that he will not give up. He could not go back because he knew it was a dead end. And so he says the goal to be found in Christ if you've never circled that phrase throughout Paul's writings in the New Testament, I challenge you, I always, I always have a pen. My, my Bibles are all hacked up. Write in your Bibles, please, as you read. And for devotion, for study, circle the times you see Paul saying, I long to be found in Christ. In that description, you will be blessed by it. And so in verse 10, Paul shares his resolve. The result of all this is, I want to know Christ. There's that phrase again, the familial idea of child to parent. I want to know Christ. And now he gives us three more things that describe that. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. All three of those things we wanna, I want to pause and take a look at. The first one is the power of his resurrection. To live in expectations of the work of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the audacious claims of Christianity that is, so, that is different from any other worldview or any other religion. That not only do we celebrate a Christ who was raised to life, and is alive today, but that we can actually share in the power that raised him from the dead. This work of the Holy Spirit, which as we know in the book of Acts, was given to the church to empower it to live in the same way that Jesus did on earth. An unbelievable promise. I'd like to invite you to close your eyes for just a minute. I'm just going to read a short passage from Paul's prayer for the Ephesians that summarizes this idea. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead, seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand, in the heavenly realms. Amen. For the apostle, it was, 
it was wonderful that Jesus was raised from the dead. But one of the things we'll be talking about as we approach Easter is it didn't stop there. There was an ascension where Jesus bodily went from this world into heaven. And then what theologically is called the exaltation of Jesus is in huge prominence for our understanding of how Christ works today. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father in full authority over the affairs of this world. The second thing that Paul is emphasizing here is that we would sh- he would share in the sufferings of Jesus. So he goes from this, man, I, give, me, give me the resurrection piece, but I don't want the sufferings part. Can we just skip that? And yet, for Paul, they were inseparable. And again, during Lent, approaching Easter, we will spend time in the sufferings of Christ, and especially in Holy Week, not because we're morbid people, but because we pray the same prayer that Paul did, that somehow we can understand that suffering and loss is a normative part, not only of this life, but of our experience in Christ. We are modeling what Jesus did. Our life as Christians isn't always victorious and triumphant with answers to prayer and everything we want. We don't run from sorrow, but we learn to walk in times of sorrow and grief, not only in ourselves, but we learn to do that with other people too because it's normative again. We live in the reality that loss is a part of the Christian life. And lastly, I believe what Paul is saying here is he now goes back on the mountaintop. I want to attain resurrection from the dead. He's not wondering if that's going to happen. That has been taken care of because of what we will celebrate on Easter. What he is talking about is he wants to live in light of his eternal destiny. He wants to be able to have that permeate his immediate and temporal desires because those are the things that always we need every morning, right? I don't wake up thinking big thoughts about eternity. I think about what's on my to-do list. But Paul was praying that somehow the taste of heaven, the understanding of eternity, and living in light of that, which is possible for us, it isn't one or the other, We are eternal people now, and we've tasted of the good things of eternity just because of our ability to follow the Lord. So we focus on what we need to do in the day, but with a continual eye on what is eternal. Verse 12, the apostle continues, not that I've already obtained all this, and I I love Paul's honesty there, or have been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Sometimes we may think that the apostle was just this bulletproof, ironclad leader that just marched through the Mediterranean preaching the gospel of a risen Christ. And yet here I appreciate, and it's been a model for me as a Christian leader to make sure that I am humble enough to express my own weakness and my own failings so that people see me as a fellow sojourner and not some weird caricature of what they think a pastor is. 
Paul doesn't just have good intentions, but his resolve is to take hold of that for which Christ has given him. And again, hear me, this isn't, the Christian life isn't this white knuckle where we just hold on somehow and hope that we make it. Because the reality is that Jesus' hand and his grip on our lives is so much greater than we can ever muster up. And in fact, I'm not putting my trust in my commitment. I'm putting it in the way that Christ holds me. Verse 13. Again, a very tender uh, phrase. And you could put sisters in there as well. But he's just simply saying, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He's being transparent with the Philippians. But... (laughs) Back to the fundamentals. There's one thing I do. I forget what's behind and I strain towards what is ahead. Paul doesn't dwell on his past. And he had a horrible past because everybody knew he had blood on his hands from murdering the early Christians. They knew some of them. That's why they lived in fear of him initially when he said, hey, I'm in your club now. His past was horrific. But Paul did not dwell on his past mistakes, his sins, or his misplaced efforts. And he wasn't content either with any of the accomplishments that he had. And he teaches us that Christian discipleship is always about what lies ahead. Our past history is important, and it's not wrong to look back at all the influences that have made us who we are in the present, but God never leaves us there. The promise is that God is a potter. I love that image. And we are the clay, and he is shaping something new out of the same dirt (laughs) that was given to us in our families, in our upbringing, all the forces that have made us who we are. We're never complete. But the miraculous thing is we can make daily choices directed by God's Spirit to move closer to Christ's formation in us. Praise God. And Paul concludes in verse 14. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. There's the phrase. In Christ Jesus. I love this. Another summary. Fundamental statement. Winning the prize is obviously a sports metaphor. For Paul, he wasn't thinking about the Super Bowl. He was thinking about the Olympic Games, most likely, in the Greek era. Those were happening in his time. And he knew that the goal of the Olympics was to win that prize and to be at the top level and get the top medal. The Christian life is not a lazy afternoon experience where we just show up on Sunday afternoon with our buddies in the park and play flag football. The coach that I showed you earlier, Coach Hatch, I love it every spring when all the new freshmen come in and our guys that have been on the team come in and the coach says, listen, he says, don't be content with just making the team and getting to wear the uniform around school. So everybody thinks you're cool because you made the varsity. 
He goes, furthermore, I want you to know that we don't give ribbons for participating. As good as those might be for little kids, we're trying to grow men through athletics. And I appreciate the coach's emphasis there, and I believe that's what Paul is saying. Don't just show up. Don't just go halfway. Don't just be glad to participate. Paul is a wonderful coach because he's going back to the fundamentals. Now, give, let me give this disclaimer because whenever we speak in worship services like this, it sounds like, well, what Jesus wants is burning hot red for the, you know, the entirety of our lives. When I was a young Christian, I just thought that's what this was going to be the experience through my entire life. Just red hot Jesus freak. And then life happens and things happen, but it doesn't need to run us off the rails. As I said, even great Bible heroes show seasons of questioning, of failure, of lethargy. And what's important, and the Bible heroes show us this, is what's key is whether those discouragements deter you from even being in the race at all either sliding off the rails or leaving the race entirely. You'll hear me quote in many of my messages from Eugene Peterson, who is a huge mentor of mine through his books. He wrote a book that I love to recommend to people because you never have to read it. The title says it all. And it's simply called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A long obedience in the same direction. And I believe what Eugene is conveying to us, he's just saying, this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. And I'm looking for marathon runners, Jesus would say. And I also acknowledge that there's times when our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. You might be here this morning saying, boy, I wish I, wish I could grasp onto the stuff this really sounds good, but you don't know my situation. I don't need to know your situation to know that there's ways that Christ has given us his church to help us when we're not burning red hot. But here's one thought. It's the same thing I do in baseball when a kid is in a slump in terms of his ability to hit a round baseball with a round bat, which is the hardest thing in athletics. I put my arm around the player and I say, man, you're not the first guy that's been in a batting slump. I said, you know, the number eight hitter in our lineup, he is red hot right now. Why don't you go watch him do his work in the cage? Why don't you watch how he goes about his business in preparing to hit? And sometimes it's okay in the body of Christ to find somebody who is red hot for Jesus. Go find a Jesus freak. Hang around to them. You'll be encouraged by being with someone who is red hot right now. So if you put up the graphic as we conclude, deeper in Christ has been our focus through Paul's letter today. And anyone who has walked with Christ for any period of time knows that all kinds of pursuits can creep back into the center. Sometimes these are good things in our lives. Sometimes demands of family with young children. Sometimes our schooling 
demands the center. Sometimes our work demands to be at the center, and you can fill in what other things, your hobby sometimes, it's like, man, I'd much rather go work on my hobby. Those are all well and good, and sometimes they're all encompassing and they are necessary. But the normative part of the Christian experience is to maintain Christ at the center, even when other things are demanding of our time. And the only way that that happens, I believe, is through the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the one that brings to mind, wait a minute, <laughs> I can feel that I'm off center here. Even though I'm enjoying all these things I'm doing, there's something that isn't quite there. And the Holy Spirit is the only one also who can come as a comforter, walk alongside us, and actually draw us back in to the place where Jesus wants us at the center. I'd like to close this morning uh, with a simple poll. I did this in the first service and it was wonderful to kind of see the response of that group. And this helps me as a new pastor among you too. The first thing is, I'm, you have to do a little math, okay? So clear the cobwebs out, a little math test here. So 2020, kind of a nice number, right? Go back 10 years. I would like to see those who came to Evergreen Church in the last 10 years. So since 2010 forward, would you raise your hand just so we can see all the wonderful representation? Look at that. Keep those hands up. I think I want to just rest in seeing that. Uh, that's great. You can put those down. Um, I want to thank you, even though I'm the new guy, for your confidence in coming to this church in the last 10 years and believing that God is at work here. And I want you to know, too, that you continue to be an important part of what God's doing here. I'm not doing this poll to single out those who are newer from those who have been around a long time. You who are new to us are very important. You bring a perspective and perhaps an energy and a, a desire to serve in ways that we need. And so thank you for finding this church family. The second group, you're going to have to do a little more math because this is, I'm going back to 1990 to 2010. All right? So a 20-year period. Would you raise your hands if you fit that period? Keep those hands up. Look around. Take a look at this group. These guys have been here up to 30 years with that loyal group. And I would thank you for your confidence because you've watched the church, which is normal in church life. There's ups and downs. And you are here and you're engaged. And I want to thank you for your prayers for this congregation, for your stewardship, for your volunteering and your engagement with this church family. Well, that leaves people who were prior to 1990. And when I did my history on this church, I found out that it was founded the same year I was born. So it's easy math. 1954 was a wonderful year. If you, if you didn't live through it, uh, Sports Illustrated was started that year. Uh, Disneyland opened. Yeah, I could go on. 
It was a wonderful year, and Mercer Island Covenant was founded as a church family. And I'm going to ask this group of folks, if you have been a part of this church since before 1990, would you stand? Would you stand up? I would love to have that group. Stay standing, please. Take a look at that group. You may be seated. I also want to thank you for trusting that God has been at work at Evergreen in the long duration that you have called this your church home. Every church that I have served has had people like this that have stayed through even more of the ups and downs. And I love to say to them, you know, you could have left at any point, not just when times were bad. You might have left when times were good. You might have checked out other places because we live in a culture of there's great churches all around Mercer Island. And yet that group of people that just stood up has said, this is my church family. And I hope to that group you realize how important you are in where this church is headed. This next year, as I work with the leadership team and the staff, and we pray to discern as you prepare to call a permanent pastor, I especially call that group to continue your commitment to going deeper in Christ and further in mission and helping us to understand what that means in 2020. I invite the worship team to come forward at this time and chose a song that I asked Katie to teach to the band. It uh, might be new. It is new to you as a church, but some of you may know it as individuals. And I, I chose this song because I think it's a perfect response to the sermon, but it also prepares us for what we're going to do next, and that is communion. I can't think of a better way to keep Christ at the center than for Jesus to say, this table is going to recalibrate you every time you eat the bread and drink the cup. And so we have an opportunity to do that this morning. Join in if you know these words, they're going to be on the screen.